KYW Original Podcasts. This week, we dig into Super Tuesday. Minority voters were key to clinching the frontrunner slots for Democrats, with Latinos stepping up for Bernie Sanders. They just want candidates who actually care about them. They want them to knock on their door, talk to them. So who makes up this voting block? And what do they want? Our community is growing rapidly. And we are moving the needle and we are seeing impact. The anatomy of the Latino vote locally and nationally, we dig in. Then mass concern over the coronavirus. The situation is changing day by day, so it's going to take us a while for us to scale up our response. What Philadelphia is doing to stop the spread and what you could do to protect yourself. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the Latino vote. On Super Tuesday, minority voters were the deciding factor for Democratic frontrunners. Black voters delivered for Joe Biden, but it was Latinos that handed Bernie Sanders, California, and Texas. Locally, more than 500,000 Latinos are eligible to vote in Pennsylvania. So who makes up the Latino voting bloc and what do they want? Does President Donald Trump have a chance? With me in the studio to discuss this Flashpoint is Rafael Collazo. He's National Director of Political Affairs at Unidos U.S., and he's host of the Found in Translation podcast. We also have Michelle Myers, community and political reporter for Aldea. And on the phone, we have Michael Toledo, CEO of Centro Hispano. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Michelle, I want to start with you because you recently uh, were co-authored an article about the Latinx vote. Could you tell me who makes up the Latinx community when we talk about voters. Okay, so nationwide, first, I did the article with two other reporters, Emily Neal and Nigel Thompson, and what we find is that literally the Latino community is composed as a voter, like 60% of the Latino community in the U.S. is Mexican. But the next one is the Puerto Rican community, which makes up 9.5%. So even though it seems like a big difference, the Puerto Rican community is the second, is a community that's like growing the fastest between the Latino community in the U.S., Mm-hmm. And besides from that, we have other groups like the Colombian community, the Ecuadorian community that make up 1%. So, like, the biggest voters will be, for the Latino community, mainly um, Mexican people and Puerto Rican people. Yeah, and how does that look in Pennsylvania? So, in Pennsylvania, it works a little bit different. There's going to be 501,000 Latinos that are eligible to vote in these elections, including naturalized citizens. So, that means that the Puerto Rican, the Puerto Rican community are actually going to be MPA the high, like the most voters that we are going to have when it comes to the Latino community. Mm-hmm. Because PA is actually the fourth city in the U.S. with the biggest amount of Puerto Rican, like people living in the country. So that's mainly where the, the initiatives to look for Latinos to vote are being right here in the country. But the initiatives aren't coming from the government, but rather from organizations that are trying to move and like work out the things with the Latino community so they register to vote. Rafael, mm-hmm. this has been a huge shift and you're seeing more and more people of Latinx descent coming online as far as voting. Yes, but not an, shouldn't have been surprising. And we've been saying this for quite some time in the Latino leadership space. If you look at the demographics of this country, the average white voter is 57 years old. The average Latino voter is 19 years old. So because of the youthful nature of our community, coupled with immigration, coupled with the re- migration of, of Puerto Ricans, 
uh, from the mainland post uh, Maria, many of which moved back to Pen- moved to Pennsylvania, and this renewed set interest in politics because of the political climate. This should not be surprising. So uh, our community is growing rapidly economically. It's growing rapidly demographically. It, and it's growing rapidly in not only voting, but an interest in, in guarding political power through leadership. Michael, I want to bring you on in, into this conversation. And specifically, um, because there's so many segments to the Latinx voting block, are people kind of split because there's so many different types of people that fall within the block? Well, no, Latinos do, you know, do not vote uh, you know, with, one, with one vote, with one voice. I mean, there is some diversity in that. But, you know, one thing that is, is universal are Latino issues are American issues. So, I mean, you will have, for example, people of Mexican descent. Uh, immigration may be an issue that is very, very, very important to them, whereas people that may be coming from the Caribbean or Puerto Rico, I mean, it may be issues of, of education uh, or health care that are of the primary importance, and, and they're going to vote with, with, you know, what, that platform resonates with them in, in that space. So, you know, though Latinos may share a common culture and, and, and heritage as it relates to what is important to them and what will motivate them to get to the polls, that could vary depending on, on well, where they come from and what their, their positions are on certain issues. Like every other group, there's a lot of diversity in the community. Mike talked about this, that and, and Unidos has just released updated polling, which is really mirrors what we've seen for the last several years, that economic insecurity, health care, and immigration are generally the top three issues that Latino voters in Pennsylvania throughout the country care about. Um, but it's really important, and I think the biggest thing I want your listeners to share together this conversation is that, like every other community, Latinos yeah. have to be talked to. And so the biggest reason when you talk to them in the community around either why they don't vote or they prefer a certain candidate over another or have a certain sort of political perspective is a frustration that they're not being heard in this process by anybody, whether it's local officials, state officials, or federal officials. In our research, two-thirds of Latino super voters, so these are people like the people listing's grandmothers that vote in yeah. every election, mm-hmm. have not been spoken to about this presidential election so far. Yeah, and, and I want to bring you back in, Michelle, and, and Michael, please tap in when if you feel the need to, because the Latino community has been in the center of controversy over the past couple of years. The hurricanes, earthquakes, we talk about what's going on at the border, we talk about immigration issues, we talk about criminal justice reform. Michelle, what has your research found? If we go back a little bit to, like, Latino voters as a whole— and that how different they are, you can see something there. Because I was reading this article from the AP the other day that was saying how, like, in Florida, Florida for instance, a lot of people from Puerto Rico have moved, and that's going to change a lot how, well, like, a swing state like Florida. So the interesting part about that article was, like, how, despite the fact that everyone expected um, Puerto Rican people who move into the Florida to vote for Democratic Party, Actually, the Republican Party has been assigning more Latinos to vote for them. Mm-hmm. So that's a big change because not because we're Latinos, we're going to vote for the same thing. And that's like, I think, a common misconception up to a point. And then here in Philly, things are different because, as I was saying before, most of the popul- Latino population in Philly is from Puerto Rico. And there's like initiatives that are being done within the city. And so I was actually in the article we posted. It's like Congreso, they are planning to host a joint census and voter registration event sometime in April. They are organizing that. Likewise, um, they are doing a partner with Telemundo to host a voter registration phone bank on March 18. So like people are trying to do things within private organizations to get people to sign up and vote. But then it comes a different problem because you can sign up, but from that point to actually going and vote, it's different. And that's the problem we're having. 
Yeah. And if yeah. I could, if I could just jump in there, that I think that the sort of the, the big meta issue here mm. is that because of the political climate, Latinos around the country and particularly young people are having sort of an existential moment in our history mm. because really this this election, this time period is really about what is the definition of an American? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the frustration that people like myself have, who as a Puerto Rican have been, my family have been U.S. citizens for over 100 years, but more recently living in the mainland United States in the Philadelphia area 450, and people that look like me and have and, and pronounce it in Coyasso still being questioned around how American we are. And so mm-hmm. that's why, regardless if it's your multi-generational Hispanic or someone that's more recently arrived, we're having this conversation on a much deeper level because the political climate's really stating that we are trying to not only potentially rechange our political system, but really codify how you define being an American. And that's, and that's really what's at stake in this election for our community and what a lot of our young people who are being bullied because they uh, in school, because they're, they yeah. speak with an accent and are dealing with some very real day to day consequences this mm-hmm. political climate mm-hmm. are struggling with right now. It's a whole rhetoric and it, yeah. like you can even measure it with numbers. So like there was like a study that the Pew Research Center did and they were showing how like 55 percent of Latinos they talked to. They said during the 2016 election. They voted for Hillary Clinton not because they agree with her, but rather because they just wanted to vote against Donald Trump because of his rhetoric against Latinos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a lot of other communities. And I want to bring uh, Mike back in here because I want you to give some discussion about the rest of Pennsylvania. Because while we have uh, the certain demographics in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is very different. And and as you know, Michelle mentioned, we have uh, you know there are hundreds, half a million um, Latino voters. They could cast ball- ballots in uh, in November. Absolutely. I mean, being you know sitting here in Central PA, I mean, I sit at the heart of the corridor in Reading, Pennsylvania. I mean, along, along the 222 corridor, if you come into Pennsylvania, you know, from from Easton, Bethlehem, Allentown, Reading, Lancaster, down to York, there are more Latinos living along that corridor than in Philadelphia or in Pittsburgh. So Central PA and the Latinos in, in that, along the corridor can have a, a huge say in, 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 in which way Pennsylvania goes. And I'll tell you, in Central Pennsylvania, there is a lot of, of activity. You know, there are the Latinos here in Central PA have said enough is enough. You know, we, they are about breaking barriers and building bridges. The young Latinx community uh, are engaging. They're, they're getting more involved. They're trying to, to do more around um, ed- voter education, around the issues that matter most. Here in our city, in Reading, Pennsylvania, you know, the, the last election, municipal, uh, municipal election, you, we elected our first Latino mayor of uh, Puerto Rican descent. We uh, elected our first Latino county commissioner of Puerto Rican descent. Our school board, the Reading School District, one of the largest school districts in the state, um, has Latino representation. So here in Central PA, the Latino community has been moving, have been moving the needle on, on engagement. And the Central Hispano has been, uh, you know, again, leading that effort because as, as Rafael talked about, no one is talking to us. The, the folks who are running for office are now talking to us. So what we are doing is taking it upon ourselves to educate our community, to talk to our community about the importance of engagement. And we are moving the needle and we are seeing impact, collective impact taking place. Yeah. And I, and I want to say that, um, do, do you think the Latino community realizes its power? Has, do you think that at this point they're saying, you know what, if we come together, 
we could literally swing this election. Well, I think that the 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 horror of these natural disasters in Puerto Rico mm. have been a turning point for the Puerto Rican diaspora here in Pennsylvania to understand that concept. So when these tragedies have happened and with the disillusionment on with both the island government and the federal government around their response, Puerto Ricans have taken it upon ourselves to mobilize, whether it's relief efforts and ongoing economic development and, and, and philanthropic efforts directed to our brothers and sisters on the island. And I think Puerto Ricans that grew up like me here, multi-generational that, you know, I'm in the politics, but many others aren't didn't feel like they could make a difference, saw that they could make a difference in our community mm. and are now looking at locally how they can make a difference in politics to not only impact our quality of life here, but impact the quality of life for our brothers and sisters on the island of Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah. And and I want to ask you this. I mean, so many young people, uh, I mean, it, it takes a while. When you're young, it takes a while for you to recognize your power. Do you think that is part of the impact too? And and and. and both Mike and Raphael both mentioned that the young people are kind of coming online here, Michelle. Yeah, actually, it's it's like really interesting because being like a, re- a community and political reporter, like during the midterms, I was actually in the streets talking in polls with people. Mm-hmm. And it was like very interesting to see like this, this difference between like older voters and younger voters. Because like there's one thing in common is, is that both of them are pretty tired because they feel like, the government only cares about them or candidates only cares about them when elections come around. And the rest of the year, they forget about the Latino community. Mm. Sounds familiar to me. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you hear that from voters in general, but mm-hmm. like especially when going to districts like District 7 and Kensington, like where there's a big population of Latinos, they feel like, well, yeah, I'm young and I feel like I have a lot of opportunities, but like everything around me is telling me that being Latino is not the right thing, that speaking Spanish is not the right thing, that I can be who I am because it's not okay right now. Mm-hmm. And that's like extremely complicated. And then there's like a lot of things when it comes to this because government pretty much dictates in a sense what is like acceptable and it isn't. And these people who are very young, they feel like who they are might not be okay and they are fighting against it. So you take it to social media where people are actually saying like not all immigrants are these, not all Latinos are these and like trying to fight a constantly fighting stereotype. Yeah, and I want to throw this out, and and this, you know, you tell me what what you think about this concept, because one of the arguments that people have made is a lot of immigrant communities come in, um, and and want and kind of go to the white side, so to speak, instead of trying to instead of dealing with what you mentioned, Raphael, and what you just mentioned, Michelle, the othering, they try to you know fully assimilate and remove themselves from culture. Is that a something that you because a lot of African-Americans, you just can't do that. Is that something that you see people trying to do? You, and, and We're and, getting into a heavy discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, is, yeah. And when you talk about, because, I mean, you know, you see other populations of folks yeah. start out one way. And in order to overcome some of that, that's. Well, that, there's a, yeah, yeah, there's a colorism element to mm-hmm. that, which obviously, you know, depending on what you look like and what your racial background is, as a Latino changes that dynamic. But I think one of the things we're seeing generally. Yeah is that this political climate is flipping the script in the whole situation because it doesn't, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're, if you are elite from your country. And I mean, look, we have white immigrants that are, that are in senior levels of our military Mm. that are being scorned for being immigrants and being questioned for their Americanness. So you can imagine even, even if you're middle Mm. class or what have you. So we are seeing, to be honest with you, what Mm. I see, I don't know if y'all agree, but what I'm seeing is Latinos that maybe in another era would have kind of 
tried that approach of integrating and assimilating our society, realizing that they're being targeted. And their yeah. kids, maybe because they're just a little darker than the other kids or have this an accent. This other, is all a family. This you is know? a family here. And, yeah. and the other part of that that's also mm-hmm. happening, this other movement of Afro-Latinidad is also mm-hmm. taking place, where Latinos are feeling more comfortable to question and to highlight our, our blackness. And so there's sort of an internal movement that's happening in our community around that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics. A part of this, the other thing I wanted to mention that's related to that question is the idea that I believe the Latino youth are going to save not only our community but our country. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing they're seeing is on the other side of the sherry is they're changing our pop culture in ways that we don't even understand. Seven of the top YouTube music artists in this country are Spanish-speaking artists. Yeah. Yeah. And they're changing hip hop. They're changing pop culture. We saw the Super Bowl performance. Yeah. And our young people are saying, good. hold on. <laughs> if we run the culture, if we run, if we're changing, you know, if, if there's guacamole served in every restaurant, then we we need to own our political power the way we're owning our creativity. And, and I think that is Agreed. that is step one. And I want to bring you uh, back here, back in here. How do you mobilize? Um, and Michael, you talked about. Uh, the Latinx community and and in the middle of the state, um, sort of like realizing their own power and sort of getting folks elected. How did that mobilization happen, and how can that type of attitude spread throughout the country and cause a Latin wave, so to speak? It, it all happens grassroots. It all it all starts with organizations like the Centro Hispano, with organizations that the Latino community respects and trusts. You know, and then we go out to our community partners like Spanish language radio. Um, and Spanish uh, language news outlets. And we just come together around you know, spreading the word around the importance and the important role that we all play, the importance of the power that we have with our vote and, and we, with what's important to us, and, and, and letting our community know that, again, if we want to see change be made here locally, we have to step up, we have to take action. And, you know, and that's how we've been able to do it uh, here in central PA. And, and we've had a great deal of success. I, I wanted to get, to get back to something that Rafael talked about when we talked about you know, the assimilation that is taking that that is taking place versus the acculturation. I think assimilation has been what, what happened in the past, where we tried to assimilate to be, be maybe something that we're not. But now the acculturation is taking place, where again people's culture, uh, the, the Latin culture that that they bring with them, they see value in that. They see you know the value in, in who they are, and they bring that with them. Uh, which is, I, I think, a, a newness, and it's something that has taken this uh, this country, the state, by you know, by storm. And and I, and I see that happening in central in central uh, PA, but also around the country. This is also a census year, uh, another big opportunity for the Latinx community to stand up and say, "We are here." Does that make a difference, and will that impact? the vote in 2020 definitely like the amount of people who will like register themselves on the census will be really important not only now in this election year but for the next 10 years and that makes a lot and like talking about the latino wave i feel like something that people are not realizing in the elections and the census is that right now it might not seem like the latino community has as much power as it actually has but it's because we're really young so like if you think on the long run it's going to be a lot more of Latinos and it's going to be a lot more power than it is right now. Because I was reading this thing that was saying how like the youth of the U.S. depends fully on the Latino community. And that's just how young our community is. One day it's going to come where it's like going to be extremely important. And when it comes to the census, you can see that. But the problem with that is that 
there are a lot of people who are afraid, like immigrants, for example. Yeah. Like, yes, there's no citizenship question, but the whole buzz around it was so big that the immigrant community is very afraid of what's going to happen to them if they sign. Or just Latinos across the board. Yeah. In this political climate, I mean, the the least you can want to interact with the federal government, the better. Because it's just, it's just that's the kind of fear that that this administration has imparted on our community. In terms of just the Latino influence, and in, you know, again in our communities and in our country, you talk about small businesses. I mean, again, the fastest growing segment of small businesses is Latino-owned businesses. I mean, again, the census for that for the Latino communities is going to be so critically important. I mean, we're talking about two thousand and one hundred thousand one hundred dollars for every person that is counted on the census. And again, if Latinos come out. And they, they complete their census forms. That is millions of dollars coming back into the neighborhoods, coming back into the schools, the hospitals, you know, that, that will help impact positively our community. So census will play a very important role. And here locally in central PA, we're tying the census to voter engagement. It's, it's important, Cherry, that your listeners understand this. Well, to piggyback on what Michelle Mike just said, is that, it's very important for everyone in Pennsylvania for Latinos to fully be involved in the census because yeah. if it wasn't for the Latino explosion of growth in our state, our state would literally be losing population. It's true. And that's, too. And that's yeah. how old the, the population is so that we're already going to lose. We projected to lose a congressional seat anyway because mm-hmm. of this old population that we have generally. So if you want to lose more political representation, more political power with our federal budget, then, yeah, block Latinos from from getting engaged. I mean, we all know certain neighborhoods, Upper Darby, Ben Salem, parts of Northeast Philadelphia. You go up Castor Avenue, you live. You go to Hazleton, Lebanon, PA, Reading, PA, where Mike's from. These yeah. are dying neighborhoods. These were dying communities. And Latinos, and specifically Latino immigrants, are revitalizing them culturally and economically. And it's, like, really important to talk about immigrants, like the ones that have become naturalized, but also the ones that haven't. Because they also count, and in the long run, they will probably become naturalized. Like as of as of 2017, 37% of immigrants who came in became naturalized citizens. So it's important to count them because they will be the parents of future American citizens. They are relying on their taxes to, like, paying their own taxes for a society to rely on them. Yeah, yeah, and we're getting close to wrapping up, but I want to talk about challenges because, um, you know, every community has challenges in trying to get people registered. Number one. And then, like you mentioned, Michelle, I mean, just because you register doesn't mean you're going to show up to the polls. And we had a big problem in 2016 with voters just not showing up because they didn't find anybody that they liked. How could what are some of the challenges and how do you overcome them? Well, here in Reading, what we're doing is is we're having uh, town halls, but we're having town halls, the first of its kind that are in a bilingual format so that, you know, folks that are Spanish dominant speakers. Um, can come to a town hall and they can listen to the town hall because translation is provided live at the same time. So they're hearing the platforms in, in their native language. So we're engaging them that way so that they feel that they're valued. They feel that, oh, we're, we're having, you know, the platform shared to us in our language. But we're also, ta- you know, talking about ride shares. Uh, we're, we're talking about radio stations that are going to be uh, plugging and promoting the importance of, 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 of voting and calling into the radio stations let them know where they're at, at what precinct, and what number are they. So we're trying to make it almost like a family affair, like voting, you know, it, it, it's an engagement. It's everyone together. Those are the ways that we're trying to do, do it here in central PA so that everyone feels valued, everyone feels like their vote matters. 
at the end of the day, this is a resource question, and we've talked about this earlier in the show, is that Latino advocacy organizations, political parties, whoever is trying to engage the Latino vote, needs to invest the resources to do so. Yeah, yeah. And so I just came back. I've been spending time in the Southwest for the last several weeks, and we see this rise in Senator Sanders amongst the Latino vote. And when I talk to Latinos in the Valley, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Arizona, here locally, they're like, he's the only campaign speaking to us. He's hiring friends and neighbors to have conversations about what we care about. He's people, people, we want to be listened to like every other community. And that takes dedication. That takes resources. Yeah. Yeah. Go right ahead. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, I'm a journalist. so I can only tell you what people have told me when I interview them. And that's, they just want candidates who actually care about them. They want them to knock on their door, talk to them. If they don't speak Spanish, find someone who does and like let them communicate. Because if you want their votes, they say, then you should be trying to understand what their necessities are. Yeah. And I got to ask you this because uh, I went to, uh, you know, uh, Black Voices for Trump. I know there's Latino Voices for Trump as well. There is a concerted effort. I know. So other show. Uh, but it's real. But, but, yeah. but I'm just saying. But it's real. If we talk and about all candidates. there's reasons for that. And, you know. We're not talking. We're not yeah. specifically partisan for this, this discussion. Oh, yeah. But we can talk the, about the reasons the, why. But that's the a, yeah. Trump administration is also reaching out, reaching out oh, to the Latinx community, absolutely. and they and I think that because there are Latino voters who vote for Trump, it's a whole different conversation. Yeah. But yeah. It, like, I actually went to the New Jersey Wildwood rally that he did recently, and it's a pretty interesting dynamic in a sense because we were actually looking for Latinos who were Republican and voted for him, and at least like. In the night we spent there, we couldn't find anyone. But we did see Latinos. So when we interviewed them, we were like, oh, are you, like, supporting Donald Trump? Most of them were like, no, we're here because um, we, we were afraid of what was going to happen or what he was going to say. So we decided to come here and see what was going on. Oh, so they were there just to make sure nothing, nothing they just wanted to be able to take it back and say, this is what he said, look out. Yes, yeah. and, like, it wasn't like they were supporting them. And so um, I remember asking them, but if you're here, don't you think people will think you're supporting them? And they were like, actually— yeah. I just want to know what's going on. And they were like high school kids. A lot of them were, were really young. But a lot of people, uh, minority voters who have supported Trump, have said that they can't let people know because they fear for their own safety. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that is that a real thing well, within the Latinx community? Well, where... I mean, it's like every other community. It's a very polarizing topic. Yeah. And there's people that, look, I mean, let's keep it real. Every Latino that's listening to this has a relative that supports Trump for a lot of reasons, different reasons. And there's anxiety and there's people that have lost relationships, loved ones that they're not talking to. This is the kind of pain and polarization that this administration has caused. It's very personal. Look, about 20 to 25 percent of our community votes Republican in every national election. Most of that is because of the, our social conservative strand. Yeah. So a lot of that, it could be literally anyone on the ballot on the Republican side, the pro-life voters. And so he's sort of manipulating that, frankly. But the bottom line is that there is he is going to make that investment and he's going to push on that. Yeah. And it's going to continue to cause this division in our community. Well, because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. And I want to say thank you to all three of you for being on the show. But my final question is, let's talk predictions for 2020. Will this be the largest Latino turnout ever? And if so, will the Latinx vote be the deciding factor? In 2020, I'm giving it to you, Michelle, and we'll end it with Michael. Go right ahead. Based in number wise right now, one in 10 voters, Latino voters, is only going to be 18 to 23. So 
young people vote more in general. And in a sense, those are the hopes that people will actually go and vote and it's young people and they will decide what's best for the country because they are the ones who have a whole life ahead of them. Now it's whoever goes for the young folk. Go End right of ahead. 2020, we're going to look back and say, wow, this really was the year that the Latino vote, not only nationally, but in Pennsylvania, really became the Latino wave we've been waiting for. And I predict that the total turnout in Pennsylvania will be around close to 10% Latino of the total electorate, and that's going to make a big impact. Final word for you, Michael. Yeah, I agree. I'll be bold to say the Latinx vote will have a significant impact, not only in Pennsylvania, but I think in the country. You know, the Latino vote will will dictate, you know, who is the next president of the United States. And with that, I want to say thank you so much to Rafael Collazo, Michelle Myers, and Michael Toledo for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, the virus is burning up headlines, causing fear. The city officials say they are on it. We should be able to keep this virus under control. What you can do to protect your family from coronavirus. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you rate and review this podcast? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Please give us feedback. I read every single one of them, and I really appreciate you. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Now, let's get to it. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmaker of the week is coronavirus. It's been burning up headlines as more and more people test positive for the virus. So far, only a few cases have been identified in this region. So what is the city of Philadelphia doing to keep you safe? And what can you do to protect yourself and your family? I pose those questions to Philadelphia Health Commissioner Dr. Tom Farley, who spent decades working on controlling the spread of infectious diseases. Dr. Farley, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks very much. Good to be here. This coronavirus is causing a panic throughout the country. Uh, where does this stand in Philadelphia? As I speak today, we have no identified cases in Philadelphia. Uh, it's obviously uh, spreading across the country, and we expect that sooner or later we will we'll see some cases here. And so what precautions is the city taking just to make sure that, you know, we have everything that we need in case it pops up here? We're working with a variety, wide variety of partners, hospitals, doctors, laboratories, et cetera, to identify people who would have this infection uh, as quickly as possible uh, and then to work to have them be isolated so that they don't spread the infection to other people. And for those people that they may have already been exposed to, to identify those folks and keep them in quarantine or I would say modified quarantine so that they don't expose people if they become sick. And if we uh, execute that strategy well, we should be able to keep this virus under control. Why are people so concerned about this coronavirus versus other kinds of of colds and flus. There's reason for people to be concerned about it. The uh, case fatality rate, that is the percentage of people who get this infection and are recognized as such who die is about 1%. Uh, And 1%, that means 99% of people do fine, but that 1% still could end up being a lot of people who died if the virus were to spread widely. Uh, It has been uh, controlled to some degree in China and in Korea. Uh, The number of cases there is falling. So we think we can control that here if we uh, take those actions. Uh, But there there is a reason for people to be concerned about this. Yeah. And it seems like it spreads a little bit easier than other viruses. Well, it spreads easier than some viruses and not as easy as as other viruses. It doesn't spread apparently as easily as the flu does or as as easily as a cold does. Uh, But it's more easily spread than, say, Ebola. Yeah. And so um, are there things that people can be doing? Because everyone keeps saying, wash your hands, wash your hands. 
Well, you know, in general, washing your hands is a good idea to protect you, not just from this virus, but many other viruses. The main message is that if you are sick with a fever and a dry cough, uh, those, might, those are the two most important symptoms of this virus, uh, to stay away from other people so that you don't spread the infection to other people. If you feel you need medical care, call ahead and let them know that you're coming uh, so that they can isolate you so you don't expose other patients when you're there. Uh, and if you have those symptoms and you've traveled to an affected area, then uh, we're recommending that doctors test you for this virus. And if the virus test is positive, then the health department will follow up. This is cold season, right? I have a cold. There's this widespread paranoia. So is there a way to sort of help people deal with that fear? Uh, Well, first, to be clear that this is respiratory virus season. There are all kinds of viruses we're all getting. Colds are common. Uh, This virus is different from a cold, though. A cold is going to give you a runny nose. A runny nose is not a symptom of this problem. It's a fever and a dry cough. It's an infection in the lung itself. The vast majority of time here, anybody in Philadelphia who has respiratory symptoms will not have this virus. So they should look for symptoms that are characteristic of this. And if they have that and in combination that with a travel history, then they should be evaluated. The rest us are probably fine. And if we all do our part, we think we can contain this. And so uh, people need to recognize that as much as there is reason to be concerned uh, that, that we have a way of dealing with this. And there's been a lot of talk about it. I mean, you, the, the mayor is holding a press conference. We saw the governor hold a press conference on Friday. We see the president of the United States holding a press conference. Everybody's talking about this. Do you think it's, it's causing this widespread fear where now everybody's thinking they have the coronavirus. People need to be uh, aware of what the risk is. Uh, we need to be honest about that. We don't want to understate the risk, but they don't need to, we don't want to overstate the risk as well. So for most people, life will go on uh, as it has before. They're not going to become in contact with this virus. But we do want to get the message out about for people who do potentially come in contact with the virus, the steps that they need to take for us to protect them and their family members. Yeah. When should you self-quarantine? Really, if you are exposed to someone who is known to have this virus, then you should be separated off for 14 days so that if you get these symptoms, you're not exposing further people. If that were to happen, though, the health department would be in contact with you about that. But more generally, anybody who has a fever and is ill these days, try to stay away from other folks. Don't be going to work with a fever. Don't be going to school with a fever. Probably your fever would be some other sort of virus, but this will protect the people around you no matter what it is. Any advice regarding masks? Should you wear a mask? Should you not wear masks? So it makes sense for someone who is actually sick uh, with a fever or respiratory infection. If they're in public and exposing other people, then they should wear a mask because then when they cough, they won't be putting droplets out in the air that might infect other folks. It does not make sense for people who are healthy to walk around wearing a mask. It's not going to do them any good, uh, and it just makes it means that there are fewer masks available for the people who need it. So a mask is for somebody who is sick. A mask is not for, for people who are healthy. Are there specific type of masks that are better than others or it doesn't matter as long as something covers your face. Well, the mask that you can get at a drugstore is going to be a, a surgical mask. Um, there are masks that uh, healthcare workers use, which are much uh, higher quality. They protect against other sorts of intrusion from different viruses. That's not something we would recommend uh, ordinary people buy. Uh, the masks that are available to them are the surgical masks. And again, those are for putting on someone who is sick. Yeah. And so who is the most vulnerable here? Well, as far as getting the infection, really any adult uh, has potential if they're exposed to it. Uh, it, For whatever reason, it appears that children are protected. Uh, But our most concern is that people who are elderly or have chronic illnesses are more likely to get a severe infection if they were to get an infection. And that's true for flu and other viruses as well. Dr. Farley, you've been in this business. You've worked on these types of issues for many years. Does this stand out to you in any kind of way? 
And if so, how? You know, we've had other coronaviruses that have arisen in the world that were had some fairly severe infection. There was SARS. There's another one called MERS from Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And both of those are, in a sense, a model. Uh, both of those we were able to contain with these public health strategies. This is a little different because this may be a little bit easier to spread, but we think that those strategies can work. It's different from flu. Um, I would say each new infection that arises on the scene has its own characteristics, and we learn about what those characteristics are, and we put in place a public health response uh, that's appropriate to that. So uh, we're getting more information every day about how this is behaving around the world. And I think we have a a clear strategy now on how to deal with this. um, And we simply need to deliver on that strategy. We saw the the Surgeon General here in Pennsylvania. We saw all the health officials kind of working together. Uh, Do you feel confident that there's also, you know, like the protocols are being followed and that everything is that needs to be done is being done. Well, we certainly are working very closely with the Centers for Disease Control and the people at the State Health Department. We're always in close communication and we have a particularly close communication now. Uh, this And the basic type of work here is the sort of work that we do every day. Uh, we do need to scale it up, though, for the situation. Uh, and testing is, is available today and it wasn't available yesterday. So, uh, the situation is changing day by day. So it's going to take us a while for us to scale up our response. But I am confident that we have the basic expertise to do this. It's going to take us a while to put all the, the actual activity in place. And people have said that we're about to be you know, done with flu season and cold season and that this could actually be something that comes back in the fall. Are, are there any concerns? or any discussions about that at all? I think it's impossible to predict how long this is going to be with us. It may or may not disappear as the weather gets warm. If it disappears, it may or may not come back. It may just smolder along. Our focus right now really ought to be try to contain it right now as it uh, arrives in the city and keep it as low level as possible. And then we'll simply have to watch from there what happens to it. Final word uh, to anybody who's really concerned about this, especially if they have kids and they're afraid to go out to public places. Um, just words of advice. If you're feeling fine, no reason not to continue to go out about your ordinary activities. This, you know, this is right now we're talking about very, very small numbers of people who are involved. Uh, just be on the lookout. Again, if you have a fever and a dry cough, uh, separate yourself from other folks. Uh, and if you have that and a travel history, uh, then talk to your doctor about getting a test. Should people be concerned about going traveling? For the most part, no. Um, you know, there are some uh, areas where the disease is spreading fairly rapidly right now where there's a, a caution to avoid travel to. But uh, most places that don't have that caution. And so I wish you and the city luck as you guys work on this and stay healthy, Dr. Okay, Farley. Thanks very much. Thank nice you. Talk to you. Next up, they're raising awareness about an often forgotten disease impacting women. It's causing scar tissue. It's causing organs to fuse together. And it's very, very painful. Local efforts to advocate for policy change during Endometriosis Awareness Month. We'll be right back. Flashpoint fam, if you like what you hear, please stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes. Some of our most popular episodes include the exclusive featuring David L. Cohen from Comcast. He's talking about the $20 billion lawsuit against the company brought by entertainment mogul Byron Allen. In addition, we got a lot of downloads on our hair and identity show it was inspired by the one and only Ayanna Presley, who came out as bald. And if you're wondering what is human trafficking, take a listen to this Flashpoint Extra exclusive where Philadelphia mom tells the story of her daughter getting trafficked at 15 years old. She's sharing it, hoping to save others. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. Tell us what you think. Thanks all. 
Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. Around the globe, an estimated 200 million women are affected by endometriosis, but still, many are unaware that this chronic disease even exists. The Endomarch is being organized to change that with teams worldwide planning to hit the streets later this month. Here to tell us more is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker and State Representative for the organization, Beth Kovacs. Welcome to Flashpoint. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So first of all, for those who have never heard of it, what is the Endomarch? Okay, the End of March is actually an organization that started about seven years ago mm-hmm. by a professional surgeon, Cameron Nazat. The reason he started the organization is because his mother has endometriosis. He started the gold standard surgery, which is what every woman with endometriosis should be getting, and they're not. Wow. And so he started this um, to raise awareness. Correct. So why do you think so few people know about endometriosis? Unfortunately, a lot of doctors are not specialized in endometriosis, Mm -hmm. and we should be seeing specialists. So there is a gap between the community and doctors, and that is why it's taking seven to 10 years for women to actually be diagnosed statistically. And let's just back up. What is it? Endometriosis is a similar tissue lining, and instead of being shed every month, it's actually growing on the outside of your uterus. So there's nowhere for it to go except up inside your body. So it's causing adhesions, it's causing scar tissue, it's causing organs to fuse together. And it's very, very painful. And so basically uterine lining is on the out, outside Correct. of the uterus and it's in your body wreaking Correct. havoc. Basically. Yeah, it actually stopped my left uter from working. So that is damaged. I have lost 22% left kidney function. I've had six surgeries total. I've lost a child and I can no longer have a child. Wow. And so you have endometriosis. Correct. Yeah. And this has sort of motivated you and inspired you to, to push and become an advocate. Absolutely. Because I've been in pain for so many years. And when you go to a doctor and they say, no, that pain is not associated with endometriosis. And they will give you test after test after test. And on paper, I look healthy. CT scans, MRIs, ultrasounds does not show endometriosis. And that's what they're still trying to diagnose you with. And the only way that you can find out if you have endometriosis is to actually be open and have laparoscopic surgery. And you had some surgery and that's how they figured it out because they saw it. Yeah. I mean, I had went in there and I saw online in Facebook groups about endometriosis. That is how I heard about endometriosis. And when I mentioned it to all of the doctors that I was dealing with, they were like, no. Because I don't have the normal symptoms that a person with endometriosis has. We are not a cookie cutter disease. We have many, many differences. And it's not just period and reproductive. It is a wide body chronic disease. Mm. And so that kind of informs your your advocacy as far as policy changes. Tell us about that. Well, what the Endomarch wants to do is they want a panel. You know, every disease has a panel. We need to start updating things and getting a panel together to see how we can affect change in the community for these women. Um, Why is there a delay of seven to 10 years? That is not right. And by that time that a woman gets her official diagnosis, it's too late. The damage is already done. And so Endo March is meant to raise awareness and there is an actual march. 
Every year for the past seven years, there's been a march. And I know that other women on other organizations do as well. There's fundraisers. There's not many organizations out there, but the end of March is really getting huge. It's really getting huge and it's all over the world. But I believe right now the closest one is Long Island to me. Yeah. So, um, but they are having a virtual online endo march. So if you can't make it, because many women with endo are in pain all the time and that's a long day. So you can join online and be a part of people's day and there's going to be speakers there's going to be prizes i mean it's i'm I'm excited i look forward to that and so what are you hoping happens because of endo march and because of this effort to raise awareness i'm hoping that my legacy to my daughter is not giving her endometriosis and if it is i want to care for it by the time it reaches her and fortunately since i've been through it i am an advocate for her but how many other women out there don't know How many other children out there don't know? And it starts when you're a teenager, you're in pain. Nobody really believes you because it's normal and it goes down a really bad road. So my goal is to get out there and make it prevalent that we need a change. Not tomorrow, not the day after, today. And so give us some advice here. Like if you're a woman and maybe you've been having pain, maybe you, you know, did some Google research or whatever, may have thought this was an issue, but, you know, your doctors, like they told you this isn't. What will your be your advice to teach them to advocate for themselves? Well, first of all, if you're in pain three weeks out of a month, it's not normal. I'm only 40 years old. When my daughter was born, I was 26 years old. And a year later, I couldn't get off my floor. My back pain was so bad. I went to chiropractors. You're inflamed, you know. But then, like, I'd get a chiropractic adjustment, and the pain would come back three days later. So another thing is painful during intercourse. Sex should not be painful. Let's just put that right out there. That is one of the main things. So don't push that off. And make sure you just know the word endometriosis, and you need to advocate for yourself and say, listen, I need a second opinion or send me to a specialist who knows about endometriosis. And it's not to be rude to that community. It's that they're not getting enough funding. They're not getting what they need in order to help women. Because women typically don't, you know, they don't speak up, especially about issues like this. Correct. Are you hoping that this changes? I do. That women kind of keep those types of issues, women issues to themselves. I do. I do. I have met a lot of women in this road. Like they don't want to tell their husbands. They don't want to tell their work. They're suffering in silence. And it should not be like that. When your body is growing something inside of you and crushing your organs, it's not normal. And it's okay to have bad days. And you need to accept what you're going through and figure out how to make the next day better. And so you found community online. There's support groups. So if someone's dealing with this issue, they're not alone. I found my women when I went in there. I did so many Google searches and I'm like, this just doesn't sound like me. I don't really know. And then I found these communities online. When I got in there and was accepted, it was like, wait, this is what I'm going through. How come they're all going through this? But I can do an internet search or I can talk to a doctor and they're not saying that. Yeah. And so now people are speaking up about it. More and more people are hearing about it. I've heard about it on different shows now. You're here. How could people find out more information? Find your women. Make sure, you know, that you feel comfortable and then reach out to your practitioner. And when you reach out to your practitioner, you need to say, listen, I understand that you're a doctor, but I think this is what's going on with me and I would like to see a specialist. And where can people find out more about Endomarch? Endomarch.org. You can go there. You're going to learn. I've learned so much. They have so much information. They have statistics. They have economic issues that we go through, what we're spending for endometriosis every year versus other diseases. I just love it. I just love this organization. I'm so happy to be a part of it. And if people want to participate in the march, later this month. Maybe they want to show up just to be in solidarity or virtually participate. You can find out that information online, what cities are doing it, you know, through the end of March. 
So it's really exciting stuff. Wonderful. Tell us the website one more time. www.endomarch.org. So check out endomarch.org. Thank you so much to Beth Kovacs for being here and talking about this important issue in the news. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint with Cherry Gregg is executive produced by me, Cherry Gregg, with associate producer, Ali Amato. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. I'm walking through the flames. Quote poet and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. Those who stay away from the election think that one vote will do no good. Tis but one more step. They think one vote will do no harm. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.